Welcome to the second episode of Mythic Existence. Today we are going to be continuing our discussion about the hero's journey. If you haven't seen the first episode, go back and listen to that, but to catch up to speed, in that first episode we talked about the first portion of the hero's journey, which is the separation phase. And in that phase, the hero is going from their normal world into the realm of the unknown. So we're going from the realm of the familiar into the realm of basically the unconscious, into the magical world that's full of all of these, you know, strange creatures. And it's really where the hero has to confront the things that are unknown to them and have been kind of holding them back. So today we are going to be talking about at least the second phase, the initiation phase of the hero's journey. And... Kind of similar to the third, the first episode, I'm going to have to see how far we actually get in, and that will determine if I make this a three-part series or not. Um, if that's the case, we'll actually end up covering the third and final phase, which is the return phase, but we're going to at least talk about the initiation portion. To give you just a, a little overview of some of the phases of the separation that we talked about, Uh, We talked about the call to adventure, which is the very beginning of the hero's journey. Okay, so that's when the hero is given some kind of call, whatever it is, a person, a letter, coming to actually initiate them on their quest. So that was Harry Potter getting the letters from Hogwarts. That was Frodo getting the visit from, uh, from Gandalf. That's the call to adventure. There's the refusal of the call where occasionally the hero will, you know, say they don't want to go on the quest. And that's usually a momentary thing. It it usually doesn't last long. If it's going to be the hero's journey, they're going to eventually heed the call. So that's the second part. Supernatural aid is a big portion where that is, as we talked about, that can actually happen in coincidence with this the call to adventure. So Gandalf and Hagrid both function as the the supernatural aid that are calling the hero to the adventure. Crossing the first threshold is another one. And so that's the point where the hero actually leaves their mundane world and goes into the, the new world. And one of the really good examples of that that we talked about was Sam and Frodo, where in the movie they are they are standing in a field outside of the Shire, and Sam Gamgee he talks about how this is the furthest that he's ever gone from home. So that's the threshold that they're breaking past. And then finally is the belly of the whale, and that kind of serves as a symbolic representation of the hero being ready and giving into the transformation that's at hand. So that's kind of what we talked about the hero's journey being is really a journey of transformation of an exploration of the self and going beyond what is known and what is normal. So 
that's kind of the way that we've been framing the hero's journey, and that's how we're going to continue today. So let's get into our discussion of the second part of the hero's journey, which is the initiation phase. And if you remember back to the diagram that I showed where, sorry, my chair is kind of squeaking. Um, the diagram that we showed had the circle, right, which is how the hero's journey is represented, and it's cut in half. So that half is basically the, the crossing the threshold and the return threshold, but also the top half is cut into two parts, which is the uh, separation and the return, and the entire bottom portion is the initiation. So the bottom portion of the hero's journey is entirely in the unknown magical world. This is Harry Potter being in the actual, you know, magical kingdom, whatever it's referred to in Harry Potter. And uh, this is fully, you're on the road. You're not in your hometown. You're out there actually engaging with the hero's journey. And that's called the initiation portion. So let's get into it. The first part portion that Joseph Campbell delineates for the initiation portion is the road of trials. And I like to think of the road of trials kind of really going the whole length of the initiation portion. So it's something that can be running throughout the entire time that the hero is on their initiation quest. So basically how it's defined is once the threshold has been crossed, the hero moves into a dream landscape of curiously fluid, ambiguous forms where they must survive a succession of trials. Or this could be a series of tests, tasks, ordeals. They're things that the person must undergo in order to begin the transformation. So one of these, uh, you know, trials that you might think of would be the labors of Hercules, wherein Hercules has these 13 labors that he has to complete. That, that's the row of trials, basically. Joseph Campbell talks about shamans and their road of trials that they go through, which I thought was a really inter interesting discussion where shamans will have to go into some sort of altered state, state of consciousness, right? And they'll have to fight the demons that they find so that the others in you know their village or their community will be able to hunt and pray and they'll be in general just able to fight reality. So that was a really interesting example of a tangible real life version of the road of trials. Another thing that Joseph Campbell talks about is Cupid and Psyche and the trials that are shown there. And in this case, the roles are reversed because in Cupid and Psyche, it's the bride trying to win the lover instead of the lover trying to win the bride. And you also have a cruel father figure, or instead of having a cruel father figure that's withholding the, the daughter, it's Venus hiding the son Cupid. So I've got a quote from The Hero with a Thousand Faces, the book, of course, that I'd like to read to kind of jump into our discussion about the world road of trials. He says, And so it happens that if anyone in whatever society undertakes for himself the perilous journey into the darkness by descending either intentionally or unintentionally, 
unintentionally into the crooked lanes of his own spiritual labyrinth. He soon finds himself in a landscape of symbolic figures, which is no less marvelous than the wild Siberian world of the Pudok and sacred mountains. In the vocabulary of the mystics, this is the second stage of the way, that of the purification of the self, when the senses are cleaned and humbled and the energies and interests concentrated upon transcendental things. So I think that that's a really good quote to kind of exemplify what's actually going on in the hero's journey. And another thing that Campbell talks about is that today in our society, a problem that we've faced is that we've rationalized all gods and devils out of existence. So that's kind of a problem that we're faced with. Since we don't have these traditional gods and devils that are so prominent on our minds, for the most part, I mean, unless you're a stringent, like, literal observer of whatever religious function, what kind of symbols do we have to actually navigate through our lives? And how do we match our existence with contemporary symbols? I mean, this is a contemporary problem that we have, and... I don't really have an answer for it, but I think that that's why these new myths, basically, like these new legends like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, where we have these familiar symbols of the magical world or of the personification of evil and the fight against, um, you know, the darkness, basically, that's a good way to represent it as opposed to in Greek myths where you have these gods that everybody knows and accepts and are more of a everyday part of their life. That's one thing that we have that is a problem that's facing us. And that's what really we need artists and writers, especially and people in Hollywood basically to supply us with these important symbols to allow us to basically have a gateway into an exploration of our own self. That's how I like to think about it. So oftentimes in these stories, the hero has to assimilate their opposite. And so that's one thing that I think I talked about in the last episode is basically, and this is something that I believe that it's also something that Campbell stresses a lot throughout his work is that the main thing that you have to do in the spiritual quest is to pass beyond pairs of opposites. So instead of seeing the world necessarily through a prism of of good and evil or black and white, you're trying to go beyond that and get to the realm where pairs of opposites are undifferentiated. And that's something that I'm going to talk about in an upcoming episode that I'm going to do about Eastern philosophy and so you can see that like the, the hero has to assimilate the darkness within themselves and, you know, deal with what the, what the consequences of having the darkness in the world really are. So that's basically what the road of trials is. It's, the, it's these problems that are being faced throughout the entire initiation phase of the initiation portion of the hero's journey. So the next portion that Campbell lines out is the meeting with the goddess. And this is the point when the person experiences a love that is all-powerful, all-encompassing, and basically unconditional love. And 
I mean, you could say that the meeting with the goddess instead of meeting with God kind of reaffirms a male-oriented hero's journey, which it's not supposed to be like that. There's also atonement with the father. So there's a male version of this, but this would be where basically the character finds some kind of higher love figure out in the world. And this is something that I was thinking about that if we think about the, you know, Star Wars and Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings examples that we've been doing a lot, I don't know how well this is really represented in it because, I mean, I guess I was thinking about when I was preparing this like as a love figure as opposed to just a goddess figure in particular and trying to think about who that was represented by in the stories. And in Harry Potter, I guess that would be the mother, like Harry Potter's mom, Lily, is basically the goddess figure in that story. Star Wars, I guess it would be Princess Leia in the original trilogy. Um, But yeah, I don't know how big of a role it has. But one of my favorite examples from Greek mythology that kind of shows what this phase is supposed to be is the story of Diana and Acteon. And so Acteon was a hunter. And he was out in the woods with his dogs and with his friends. And... For a moment, he left the dogs, he left his friends, and he went out into the woods to just kind of explore around, I think. And he ended up coming into the sacred grove of the the goddess Diana, who is the goddess of the hunt. And he saw her naked. He beheld the naked goddess in her purest form. And this is not something that he was supposed to see. So Diana chased him. Uh, he, she threw water on him. And when she did that, he sprouted antlers and he turned into a stag. And so this is from Ovid's metamorphosis, which is full of these sort of transformations. And what happens is Acteon's dogs cut up to him and they ate him and devoured him. So in this instance, we have both the like the duality of the goddess is kind of personified in Diana here because at the beginning she's the universal mother figure who's nourishing and comforting. She's naked. She's in primal nature. But then you have the, the Kali aspect of the goddess, the destroyer aspect, the, the negative aspect. And so basically here Acteon is being initiated into the harsh realities of the visible world. And this is kind of goes further into this beyond pairs of opposites concept that we're talking about, because Diana is within herself, both these two aspects in the story, at least. And Campbell has this great quote. He said, only geniuses capable of highest, highest realization can support the full revelation of the sublimity of this goddess. So this goddess is all encompassing that she's the creator. She's the destroyer. She's mother nature. And I really love the figure of Callie to kind of go alongside of the more passive, like Aphrodite figure, because Callie is, she's, she's got a sword. She's got a head in her hand 
and this goddess is completely sublime and is beyond like this dualistic thinking that we have. And I think that this is something that Christianity lacks. Like Christianity utterly lacks the goddess um, kind of dimension of spiritual reality. You could argue that in the more esoteric traditions with stuff like Sophia and it, once you delve more into like Kabbalistic concepts of Shekinah and stuff like that, then you realize that actually, okay, the goddess figure is, but really Christianity has done a lot to kind of make the patriarchy proliferate and has really done a lot of damage for women in society in general. So this is the meeting with the goddess phase. And I think one of those, one of the things that the story of Acteon teaches us is that like, if you're not ready for this spiritual revelation, you're going to become like Acteon. You're going to be eaten alive, basically, basically by it. So that's the, that's the meeting with the goddess. And the next one is the woman as the temptress or as temptation, which is kind of an interesting other side to that discussion. So basically this is defined as the step being about material temptations that may lead the hero to abandon or stray from their quest. So it's not, doesn't necessarily just have to be the woman doing it. It could be just temptations in general. And this would be maybe Jesus in the desert is a good example of that, I think. Another really good example of this is the Buddha when he's meditating underneath the Bodhi tree trying to achieve like enlightenment and illumination is when he's being tempted by all of these different aspects of uh you know, these goddesses, like the goddess, or not goddesses, but Kama, desire, and all of these, like, worldly pleasures that they're trying to be tempted by. That's kind of what this page is. And when it's tied into the woman aspect, I really like Campbell discusses the woman as temptress in Hamlet. So if you know the story of Hamlet, basically Gertrude, Hamlet's mother, has a really, really bad relationship with Hamlet. Like, especially Hamlet hates his mom. And it's because Hamlet's mom, Gertrude, has had sex with his uncle, Claudius, and they conspired to kill his dad. And so his mom is incestuous and a murderer, basically. So Campbell says, when it dawns on us that everything we think or do is tainted with odor of flesh, woman the symbol of life becomes intolerable. And he supplies a, a, a great quote from Hamlet to kind of jump into that discussion where Hamlet says, Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw and resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Oh God, oh God. And then he continues to say, How weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Um, this is an unweeded garden, basically, that grows to seed. Thinks rank and gross in nature possess it merely that it should come to this. So he's lamenting that 
this terrible thing can become of his mother and like the actions that she had has made the world such a disgusting place. And Freud actually said that everybody is either Oedipus or Hamlet, which means that they either want to kill their mom like Hamlet or they want to have sex with her basically. So the woman is temptress and temptation is a really interesting phase. And Hamlet has an interesting response to this because he turns to the darkness to search for a higher kingdom than this one of incest and adultery. So the light is shining him away, the light of the the known world, and he goes into the darkness of the unknown, of the unconscious, basically. So the way that the hero deals with this phase is basically up to their own circumstances and kind of their own outlook on the world. Okay, next one is atonement with the father. So in this step, the person must confront and be initiated by whatever holds the ultimate power in their life. In many myths and stories, this is the father or father figure who has life and death power. And this is really the center point of the journey. And probably my favorite story that is really, I think, about this Atonement with the Father, again, comes from Ovid's Metamorphosis, and it's the story of Phaeton and Apollo. And so Phaeton, he uncovers and he realizes that Apollo is his real dad, and he really wants to take Apollo's chariot around the earth, basically. And Apollo says, okay, I'll let you do it, but don't fly too high. Don't get too close to the sun. And sure enough, Phaeton does, and the chariot catches on fire, and he ends up burning. So um, there's kind of a tragic element to that story, but it's definitely a meeting with the father. I also often think about the movie Hercules with this, where Hercules uncovers that he is actually the son of Zeus in the story, and he goes to the temple... And he, under, he comes to the realization that he's divine, basically. And so I think that that's kind of a really good allegory for what's going on. Hercules, I'd like to do maybe an episode just about that movie because there's so much like transmogrification of the roles in that story. So it's not just all Hercules, what he's doing. And that's another good example for the road of trials because you can see Hercules having to do all those things in that movie. But in that instance, he's more of playing the, the Phaeton role than he is just the role of Hercules, I think. So this is also Luke and Darth Vader. Definitely. I think that George Lucas just grabbed straight from this portion of Campbell's book and was like, okay, we need Luke to have atonement with Darth Vader in that final scene where he says he tells him that uh, he's his father, right? And there's again, just like the mother, there's there's a double aspect of the father that there could be. There could be the the sort of great father, or there could be the ogre aspect of the father. So. That's kind of the role that Darth Vader is playing, is the the ogre role, whereas opposed to Apollo or Zeus are playing the more, 
you could say the the light version of it, I guess. And Campbell says that that that's the double dragon of the super ego. So there's there's the god and the repressed id, which is the evil dragon, basically. So um, he Campbell also talks about when roles of life are assumed by improperly initiated chaos supervenes and i think that part like this bottom half there's the mother aspect and there's the father aspect but it's like once you pass through the motherly sphere of the idyllic land like the shire you go into the sphere of the father which is the burning coals and the the hellfire of mount doom basically and the Australian Mer- uh, Merngin tribe actually has some really great ogre father aspect initiation rites that Campbell's talk Campbell talks about, and they have this initiation rite where basically the the tribe members are going to get circumcised by their fathers, and so they have the great father snake that's calling for the the foreskin, and the men are often sent running back to their mothers. So the mothers are the nurturing ones here and the fathers are the ogre aspect and the harsh nature of reality. Again, I think that you can also see the atonement with the father come up in things like Aeneas's uh, travel to the underworld, which Aeneas is the hero of the Aeneid and he goes to the underworld to speak with his father I think is Aeschylus. I'm forgetting his father's name right now. I think I got it right, but and his his dad eventually tells him what's going to become of his journey, how Rome is going to be established through Romulus and Remus and all of that. So he has to go descend into the unconscious of the underworld to meet with the father figure who's going to tell him the future. And there's another interesting one from Zeus that Campbell cites where Zeus is basically speaking to his son Dionysus and he says come O Dithy Rambos enter this my male womb and so here you have the father and the mother aspect kind of curiously and fluidly merged into one which is kind of what I was talking about where like these pairs of opposites are obliterated and it's a, a, a curiously fluid realm and you have this motif in Greek mystery schools of the second birth, which is basically a personification or uh, a symbolic representation, I guess you could say, of this second birth of the mystic life that you're aiming to try and kind of have while you're on the hero's journey. And you have these self-contradictory gods in other places, self-contradictory male gods in particular, like Viracocha of Peru who is the god of sun and of storms. And that's also similar to Yahweh, who is kind of an amalgamation of the storm god, Yahweh, and El, who is the sun god. So I just always find it interesting when you have these similar myths and stories and like religious concepts that are in vastly different regions of the world like Peru, Viracocha, and the, the Near East, the Middle East with Yahweh. 
Okay, then we have the apotheosis phase. And apotheosis basically means becoming God. So this is towards the end of the initiation phase. There's only one more t- uh, in aspect of the initiation phase that comes after this. So this is when the, the hero is actually becoming divine and is fulfilling their role. So it's basically when someone dies a physical death or dies to the self to live in spirit, and they move beyond the pairs of opposites to a state of divine knowledge of love, compassion, and bliss. And I think that Harry Potter's death is a really good representation of this because, okay, obviously this show in this episode is going to be full of spoiler alerts. If you don't know what happens to Harry Potter by now, I don't know where you've been, but he gets killed right at the end of the seventh book and he goes to King's Cross Station in like this weird afterlife and he sees Dumbledore but he's actually not dead because of the all of the like complications for the Horcruxes right so he dies but he comes back to life and this is his symbolic death and rebirth this is the apotheosis and it's approaching the final stage Okay, so I also would love to do an episode about Harry Potter because Harry Potter is actually super, super mystical. It's it's an alchemical allegory of the highest nature. Most people will not catch on to it at all, but that's the spiritual death and rebirth of the alchemist, essentially, that occurs in the story. So apotheosis is an important theme. If you've ever been to the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C., there's a really interesting painting that's up there. Go go into the middle and look up, and you'll see a painting that's called The Apotheosis of Washington, where George Washington is becoming a god, and he's beside all of these pagan gods and goddesses, which is super, super interesting because today, especially, you know how you have... A lot of conservatives mainly who are like, oh, the, the forefathers were so Christian and everything. And it's like, okay, well, there were slaveholders and all this, but they were also Freemasons and had knowledge of this more ancient stuff, right? Like they, I, I could do another episode about that. If you want to learn more about that, watch uh, Secrets in Plain Sight by... I forget what the guy's name is, but he's an architect, and it's such a fascinating, fascinating uh, movie. I guess it's it's kind of like a YouTube documentary, but he's a legit guy, and his his research is great. It's based off of these two books. I've got them somewhere on my shelf. It's uh, Dimensions of Paradise and Sacred Number. These two, I'll, I'll just show them to you. So they got them right here. Oh, there goes my wand. <laughs> Dimensions of Paradise, Sacred Number. I'm getting off on a tangent because uh, I'm talking about Washington and all of that stuff. But basically, they constructed the entire like streets of Washington and all their stuff based on this like higher knowledge, essentially. And so, it's very esoteric. It's not mainline Christian. 
So, where were we at? Um, this is... I love how Campbell talks a lot about Buddhism also in his book. And at this point, at the apotheosis stage, he talks about how this is when the hero becomes the godlike being that they're striving to attain. But it's interesting because we're all, all already divine godlike beings, whether we know it or, or not. And that's, he, he talks about how all things are Buddha things. And it's at this point where the, the hero has dissolved into the perfect knowledge of the mind that has transcended these pairs of opposites. And this is, this is often has been personified by androgynous divinities in the past. The yin and yang symbol is my favorite representation of these pairs of opposites. The Kabbalistic Jews and the Gnostic Christians also represented the word made flesh, Adam, as being androgynous. Um, Hermaphrodite and Eros are both really interesting gods that are both male and female themselves. and he also talks about Tiresias, the blind seer, who was both male and female. And Tiresias had their eyes closed to the life of opposites, but within they were able to see the dark destiny of Oedipus. So that was a really good representation of the apotheosis. Shiva and Shakti is another example of pairs of opposites coming together in like a divine form. And again, this is another region where I think Christianity is lacking, where, you you know, Jesus preached unconditional love, but in fact, Christianity is known for colonial barbarity and sparking internecine conflict, essentially. And yeah, Campbell, he, he continues talking about Buddhism and he speaks about us being reflexive images of the Bodhisattva. And one of my favorite quotes that he has is basically that the sufferer within is the divine being. So in this way, basically the hero's journey is a path towards Nirvana. But here is one of the things that the hero is posed with. As you're getting towards the end of the initiation phase of the journey, when you've come to this transcendent realization, what are you supposed to do? It's very hard to come back. And the Bodhisattva, the Buddha in becoming, is not going to abandon their life. They're going to turn the transcendental truths found within onto the external world. And so that's what the, the role of the upcoming return phase is going to be. Okay, so here is the final portion of the initiation phase, which is the ultimate boon. And so this is the achievement of the goal or the quest, and it's when the hero gets what they actually went on the journey to achieve. So there's, if you think about in these stories, there's often some kind of physical material that the hero is trying to get, or... There's somewhere they're trying to go. So in the case of sticking with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, this is Harry Potter trying to get the, the, uh, 
the three parts of I'm drawing a blank on what it's called, but he's trying to get the invisibility cloak and the the wand and whatever the third part is. I'm just drawing a blank on it right now, but I'm sure you're out there like, oh, this idiot, he can't remember the third thing, but that's what it is. Or it's Frodo trying to get to Mount Doom to actually throw the ring in there. And another example that's coming to mind from contemporary stories is the Infinity Gauntlet is a good representation of it as well, I think. So, um, in the first Harry Potter, also, this is Harry getting the Philosopher's Stone, okay? Greek myths, this is Helen being reunited with Menelaus, Odysseus, this is being reunited with Penelope, and basically... Sometimes this can be like an anticlimactic moment. It's a hard thing to do in story writing, I think, is to actually like figure out the way that this is going to be accomplished. This is when the hero shows that they are a superior being, that they are a born king or queen. And I, lo- I just love how Campbell, he constantly is reiterating, we are all this hero. So the ultimate boon is when everything is accomplished, And once again, I'll kind of just try and push it on you to accept that you are this hero. Don't subject yourself to the monotony of life, okay? The world is so interesting and such a wonderful place. Don't abase yourself and shut yourself up to the worlds and the things that can be offered on your quest. So... That's what all of these heroes accept when they go out into the world. And oftentimes this final stage occurs. It's what's what call, what's called the world access, the world axis or the, the world navel. So Mount Doom is definitely that. And uh, Campbell also uses the example of Gilgamesh getting the elixir of immortality, if you're familiar with the, the story of Gilgamesh and this is when you pass into the realm of immortals and this is really you've gone through the agony of breaking through personal limitations which is the agony of spiritual growth but then you finally have this boon which is illumination and enlightenment essentially so you have to slay dragon after dragon on the path but eventually you're bestowed with the ultimate boon Okay, well, I think we're going to stop here. We'll do a third episode about the return portion of the hero's journey, which is definitely the shortest, and I I don't want to say the most insignificant, but this is the hero's already got the ultimate boon. They've already really been on the path, but this is reintegration into society, essentially. So we'll do another episode about that. But thank you for listening to another episode of mythic existence i'm gonna do that stupid youtuber thing ask you to like and subscribe i guess that's important i've got instagram pages i made a mythic existence account you can just find it i'm at archaic futurism on instagram so go ahead and follow me there i'll share interesting stuff here and then and just since this is the beginning phases of the podcast I'd love to hear about whatever topics you'd like to hear about. 
what you want to have episodes about, just tell me, reach out to me if you'd like, and I'll consider it. I've got a lot of ideas already, but I'll take whatever I can get. So thank you for listening. See you next time.